Let's now return to God's word as we look at Genesis chapter 3 in some more detail. Genesis chapter 3 is one of the most frequently referenced stories from the Bible in our modern world. It's universally recognizable from Adam and Eve and the garden and paradise and the snake and the apple, if it probably wasn't really an apple, but that's what we see when it's pictured in cartoons or in comic strips or things like that. This story is referenced in art and in movies and literature over and over and over again. It doesn't even make us think about the Bible. It's just commonplace to see this story referenced. And unfortunately, when it is referenced uh, in modern culture, it's usually done in a way that's not serious. It's referenced as a joke. It's referenced as a children's story, or it's referenced as something that we wouldn't really take very seriously. It shows up in comic strips and joke books and things like that. I initially thought of showing an example of that, or perhaps a couple illustrations of that, but I decided against it because Uh, I'm afraid to reinforce the idea that this is simply a children's story or it's something that belongs in a comic strip or it's something that belongs in a joke book because it's not. (laughs) I had a realization when I was reading uh, um, our text this past week as I was preparing that whenever the New Testament writers refer back to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter three, they do so very seriously That is, when the Apostle Paul or the Gospel writers or the Apostle Peter look back to the Garden of Eden, they do so not as a joke or in a lighthearted way, but very seriously. Just one example of that is in the the epistle to the Romans by the Apostle Paul. In chapter 5, Paul looks back to Adam and he looks back to the Garden of Eden and he makes a point about Adam by saying that it was through the trespass of one man that death reigned in this world. That is a staggering and sobering thought. For the Apostle Paul, Adam and Eve and the fall from paradise, the fall from the Garden of Eden, allowed death itself to reign in this world. And that means every time we see a casket or we hear a cancer diagnosis, or we see an empty chair around the dinner table. That is an effect of Adam's trespass. What a dark and terrible thought. And so when the New Testament writers look back at Adam and Eve and what was lost, they don't make jokes about it because they know the tragic consequences that have followed from Adam and Eve's sin. Death itself reigns in this world. Perhaps our humor, uh, perhaps the jokes, perhaps the, the cartoons are a way of distancing ourselves or shielding ourselves from uh, the, the serious nature of this account Why does the Apostle Paul uh, and the New Testament writers, why do they take this so seriously? Well, it's because they take sin seriously. The reason why Paul takes it seriously and the reason why we need to take this seriously is because this account in Genesis 3 provides a far more satisfying uh, account of the predicament we're in as 
humans than any other account that I've ever heard of. Uh, What philosophy around today, what religion around today can provide a foundational, coherent narrative of what was originally true in God's uh, perfect creation, how it was corrupted and how it's going to be restored. I don't know of any other uh, compelling account than right here in Genesis chapter three. So Paul takes it seriously. Jesus takes this seriously because this tells us who we are what has been lost, and where we are going. Last week, we had a look at Genesis chapter 2. And the point I was trying to make in Genesis chapter 2 is that God had created this world with an original design, designed for life and work, for good and evil, and for man and woman. And we saw that God's foundational structure of design and purpose are unchanged. They're still true. But what we're going to find out here in Genesis chapter 3 is that those purposes are now challenged. We now have great, great difficulty in experiencing the flourishing that we are meant to as humans in God's good creation. Um, as, as we've already heard in, uh, in the Bible reading, uh, this pristine paradise of the Garden of Eden does not last very long. It doesn't take very long for Adam and Eve to abandon God's good design, to try and take it for themselves, and they fall into sin, and everyone living after them lives with the consequences thereof. Now, when we start to enumerate the the problems that arise and the consequences that arise from this sin, I think that it will show us how serious we ought to take this. Just consider for a moment, I'll make a few observations here from the actual text of the specific consequences that flow from Adam and Eve's sin. First of all, uh, the, the once harmonious relationship between God and mankind is broken. And Adam and Eve spiritually die. And we can see this in verse eight of chapter three. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day and they hid from the Lord and they ran from him and they didn't want to be seen from him because they knew they were naked. And what had once been a relationship of harmony and openness has become spiritual death where mankind is afraid of their maker, ashamed of themselves, anxious, fearful, and unwilling to be seen for who they really are. That's the first consequence. The second consequence is now they have a broken relationship with one another. Adam and Eve, as soon as God confronts them, have you eaten of the fruit of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And Adam blames his wife Eve. And immediately what was uh, previously uh, a relationship of harmony and openness is now one of suspicion and blaming. Third, Eve's childbirth now becomes extremely painful. What she was meant to do according to God's good design now becomes challenging and painful and difficult. That's the third thing. Fourth thing, Adam's work and labor now becomes very painful and frustrating and tiresome. 
And so what we learned about last chapter, what Adam is meant to be doing according to God's good design now becomes challenging and his ability to accomplish it is now uh, seriously threatened. It's painful and challenging and difficult for him. That's the fourth thing. The fifth thing, creation itself is cursed. Verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you. The ground itself, creation itself experiences the curse of God. Sixth, Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. Verse 23, they're kicked out of the garden. In other words, our relationship with God is broken. Our relationship with one one another is broken. And our relationship with creation itself is broken. When I begin to enumerate these consequences, you'll probably resonate with all of them even today, which is an amazing thing to think about, that this story that we think maybe belongs in the long time past or as a mythical fairy tale or just something for a comic strip or a joke book, why do we struggle with all of those problems? We still struggle with all of those difficulties, the curse on creation, the broken relationship with one another, the pain and difficulty in life and in work, and most of all, the broken relationship we have with God. What an amazing diagnosis of our situation. No matter how many thousands of years ago this was written and how many thousands upon thousands of years ago it might have happened, we can't be sure about that. But what we can know is that this is telling us exactly what is wrong with us even today. What an amazing truth. Reading this, I was reminded of a book I read a long time ago uh, called Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky. That's a really long book. It took me two tries to get through it, but I did get through it on the second try. And it's worth it because it's an amazing novel. And it's a story about a man named Raskolnikov. And he basically comes up with an idea for a perfect crime, perfect murder, in fact. And he justifies what he's going to do. He rationalizes what he's going to do. He plans it very carefully. And he's got this great idea to kill someone who deserves to die. He's going to kill them. And when he kills them, he's going to take their money and give it to somebody who needs it. It's the perfect crime. He's taking the law into his own hands, and he's going to take care of this person who needs to die. Now, even though the title of the book is Crime and Punishment, we read a lot about the crime, but we read nothing about any formal or legal punishment that Raskolnikov faces. In fact, nothing of the kind actually happens in the book. The punishment comes from the crime itself. And what I mean is, even in the moment of his committing the crime, right when it's happening, he experiences regret and guilt and anxiety and fear and suspicion And the rest of the book is a downward spiral of this anxiety and fear and regret for what he's done. And even though he had justified his actions beforehand and he had rationalized them and he had planned them down to the smallest detail, once it happens, he lives in a new reality and he can't go back to fix it. And he's paranoid that someone's going to find out. He regrets what he did. He's terrified of who he's become. And it even affects him physically. He gets physically sick and he's, uh, he has psychosomatic problems from what he did uh, that day. 
And he's tortured by these complex feelings and sensations in his life. So he turns himself in. That reminds us, reminds us of the fact that Adam and Eve's sin was destructive, not simply because God is going to punish them, but the sin itself is destructive. The sin that they committed itself is its own punishment. For example, think about it this way. We read about Eve doubting the word of God. That's what she does. The serpent uh, challenges her. Did God really say? And this leads her to doubt God's word. She doubts the goodness of God's word. She doubts God's plan for the garden and her life. And so she casts God's word in doubt. Now, immediately when she does that, she distrusts God. Now, if she's going to distrust God, why would she trust Adam? Adam's not any more trustworthy than God. So if she's willing to doubt the word of God, why should she be willing to trust Adam's word? But now if she's going to distrust Adam's word, why should Adam trust her? And so you see, all of a sudden, in just one act, we went from a harmonious relationship between God, Eve, and Adam, and now there's suspicion and fear and hiding between God and Eve and Adam. And the sin itself is destructive. And that's before any punishment has been leveled by God. And that's exactly true with us. The sin that we commit itself is destructive and to a degree is its own punishment. If I don't trust God, why should anyone trust me? And why should I trust them? And immediately, like Adam and Eve, we're ashamed of our nakedness. No wonder they try to cover themselves. No wonder they try to hide from God. No wonder they can't trust one another anymore. And they start blaming one another. But that's not all. God does level legal punishment on them. Sin brings its own punishment that is true, but it also brings the wrath of God. And that's what we see next in this passage. The reason why we need to take Adam and Eve seriously, we need to take this chapter seriously, is because we need to take our sin seriously. Sin is very real and the consequences of it are very, very real. So sin is what prevents us from accomplishing what Genesis 2 told us we ought to be accomplishing. And if it's such a lethal problem, if it's such a deep-rooted problem, what is going to solve it? So let's look at God's answer to the sin, because this is almost certainly going to confound all of the exaggerated notions we have about God uh, preconceived in our minds already. Some of us might tend to think that God is petty, and he's arbitrary, and he's mean, and he just wants us to, to, to cross the line so he can squash us. And uh, that's sort of how uh, our culture tells us God is, and it's sort of how the culture reinterprets this passage here, that God is arbitrary, picking a random tree and telling them they can't eat from it. But that's not what the text actually tells us. Let's look closely at God's response to the sin, and we'll see uh, that God is serious about sin, but his judgment is mixed with mercy. Let's just look at a couple of the uh, 
illustrations of how God's judgment, which is real, is mixed with mercy. First, they do not die absolutely. So remember in uh, chapter two, God said in verse 17, you must not eat of the fruit of the tree or dying you will die. Well, they don't die absolutely. They definitely die in a particular way. They die spiritually and they die to a former life of paradise, but they don't die absolutely. Physically, they're still alive. One day they will die, but God withholds judgment enough to allow them to go on living. It's a merciful thing for God to do, to allow them to go on living. There's still life to be had. There's still joys to be had. There's still children to have and experiences in life, and God allows them that much in their physical existence. Second, we see that God clothes them. They try and clothe themselves in fig leaves. They're embarrassed by uh, their nakedness, and God clothes them. God gives them clothes to wear. What a merciful thing to do. They messed it up. Why doesn't he say, you go figure it out? Take care of yourself. You've chosen your own way. You figure it out. But he doesn't. He clothes them and he gives them clothes of skin from some animal skins. Third, he shows mercy by preventing them from eating of the tree of life. Did you notice there in the last paragraph of the chapter, God banishes them from the garden and he protects the tree of life so they don't reach out and take it, thus living forever. Now that might sound like... um, just pure judgment and not any mercy. But this is, in truth, a very merciful thing for God to do. Why is it merciful for him to prevent them from eating of the tree of life? Well, what an awful thing it would be for them to eat the tree of life and live forever in a fallen state. That would be agony forever to be always existing in, an, in a broken relationship with God, in a broken relationship with humanity, in a broken relationship with creation, in a corruptible human body that's going to waste away. But God shows his mercy by withholding from them the tree of life so that they aren't stuck in that state forever. And in fact, God will give them access to the tree of life in the new heavens and the new earth we read about in the book of Revelation. And you and I will too, but we don't get to live forever in this fallen state. God's going to renew us. And then we have the opportunity to eat from the tree of life. And so God withholding them, withholding from them the tree of life is an act of his mercy in judgment. So he spares them great agony and anguish and trouble in this life. Even in his just judgment, God is merciful. And when God deals with us, with you and me, he's not petty and he's not arbitrary and he's not mean. God's judgments on us, his discipline on us is mixed with mercy. He disciplines us in a way that allows us to grow, allows us to continue to be discipled as we go in this life. And so uh, 
by far the most merciful thing to note from this chapter is something I haven't mentioned yet, but it's in verse 15. Verse 15, I'm gonna focus on for a little while, is a very famous verse. It says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is the serpent and the woman. And between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now on one level, this verse sounds like it's just talking about snakes and humanity. And many scholars and many readers of this text say, that's all that's happening here. All we're hearing about right now is that snakes are gonna hate humans for the rest of creation. And humans are gonna hate snakes. This isn't saying anything greater or bigger than that. And if you read it with that in mind, it actually makes quite a bit of sense and it does sound right. However, as we continue in the biblical narrative and we continue to read uh, the rest of the Bible, not just the rest of Genesis, but the rest of the entire Bible, we begin to be reminded back to this verse several times over and over again. We keep being reminded of this particular verse in such a way that leads me and many other biblical scholars to believe that God is talking about more than just snakes and humanity here something greater and bigger at stake. And in fact, this is suggested to us very strongly by the very next chapter. In chapter four, something happens immediately after this curse and this banishment from the garden that's very, very reminiscent of what we just talked about in chapter three. Chapter four is about Cain and Abel. And as you know from the story, God looked with favor upon Abel and his offering but with disfavor upon Cain and his offering. And so Cain is jealous and he kills Abel. Now, what happens at that point is very, very similar to what happens to the serpent. So just as the serpent is cursed by God in chapter three, here in chapter four, Cain is cursed. Look at chapter four, verse 11. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground. And just like the serpent is commanded and cursed to crawl on its belly and wander around the earth, so Cain is forced to wander the earth. Chapter four, verse 12. And then just as the serpent is banished from the garden, Cain is banished from the land, chapter four, verse 14, driven out as a wanderer. And then God blesses Eve and gives her new offspring to stand in place of Abel. And so what we're beginning to see, what I'm trying to show is that the conflict between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman begins immediately. And it doesn't relate simply to the biological offspring of the snake and the biological offspring of the woman, but rather the spiritual offspring of the serpent and the spiritual offspring of the woman. Those who follow in the footsteps of the serpent are the offspring of the serpent. Now, I'm not making that up. That's actually a very common way of referring to people in the Bible. You'll recall perhaps from the Gospel of John chapter 8, in the Gospel of John chapter 8, Jesus is talking to the religious leaders. The, uh, the Jewish leaders accuse him of uh, being a false prophet, of, uh, of blaspheming. And they say, we know we're right 
because we are sons of Abraham. They say, we are children of Abraham. We must be right. You must be wrong because we have Abraham as our father. But Jesus responds to them in chapter eight. He says, you are not children of Abraham because you are not doing what Abraham does. You're not walking in the footsteps of Abraham. Rather, you are not following in the footsteps of Abraham. You are doing the work of your father. The devil is what he says. Biologically, yes, their father is Abraham, but not spiritually. Spiritually, their father is the devil because they're following in his footsteps. So Jesus isn't denying that biologically they are offspring of Abraham. But he is denying that spiritually, which is what really matters, spiritually, they're following in the footsteps of the serpent because they're seeking to kill Jesus. They're seeking to kill the innocent one and they're set against what God's plan is. So when the Bible talks about the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman, it's got far more in mind than biological offspring. But we're talking about who walks in the ways of the serpent. There's going to be an ongoing struggle in the biblical narrative all throughout the Bible of an ongoing war and struggle between those who follow in the footsteps of the serpent and those who do not. And that struggle culminates finally in the book of Revelation in which we read about chapter 12, verse six tells us that this dragon is the serpent of old, the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. The book of Revelation tells us that that old serpent, that ancient snake is really the devil leading people astray. And that serpent, that, uh, that Satan is finally crushed by the true offspring of the woman, the one and only Jesus Christ, who was indeed tempted by Satan like Adam and Eve, but he did not give in. He proves to be the one obedient son, the one obedient seed who was promised and so when we have this idea in mind, this, this struggle between the offspring of the, of the serpent and the offspring of the woman in mind, as we read through the Bible, we'll be reminded again and again back to this. For example, just another, just another example is Psalm 110 verse one, where the psalmist writes as God is speaking to the Messiah and God says to the Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet, which reminds us if we have ears to hear yet again of the fact that God has promised to crush under the feet of the offspring of the woman, the offspring of the serpent. So in other words, it may not seem like it now here in chapter three of Genesis, it might seem very uh, minor, uh, um, looks like just a tiny little hint but as we read the wider biblical story, we see what's really being uh, referenced here is a greater, bigger struggle than simply snakes and people won't like each other anymore. It's far bigger than that. It's far greater than that. And it's something that rests in God's judgment. It's, it's, it's the seeds of redemption sown even in 
the proclamation of his judgment. Isn't that amazing? That this is uttered in the curse, and yet it predicts and foreshadows and leads us to think of God's ultimate plan to restore humanity, to restore creation, to defeat the evil one. Isn't that amazing? Even when God is uttering a curse, it is mixed with blessing. It is mixed with the seeds of his own restoration and redemption that he will accomplish in this world. That's something absolutely amazing to me, that God is able here in uttering judgment to sow the seeds of restoration. This is the kind of thing that leads the apostle Paul in the book of Romans to say, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Uh, He says at the end of Romans 11, verse 36, who has become his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let me just pause for a moment on that phrase, from him and through him and to him are all things. Isn't that a wonderful summary of creation and the fall and redemption? From him are all things. He created everything. Through him are all things. Even in our fallenness, even in our curse, God sustains us and keeps us. And to him are all things. Everything's headed to him. He is going to wrap up this story of creation. He's going to wrap up the story of redemption because God here takes it upon himself to deal with the consequences of our sin. God takes it upon himself to right the wrongs that we introduced into his creation. He promised to send an offspring of the woman. He promises to send a chosen one who is able to do what we are not able to do. We are incapable of uneating the fruit. We can't uneat the fruit. It's done. And we can't get back into the garden. And we can't defeat the serpent on our own. But God is able and God is willing and God promises here to send someone who can defeat the serpent and who was tempted yet without sin and who's not going to take us back to the garden, but will take us forward to the new heavens and the new earth. The message of the Bible is not that you and I need to stop eating forbidden fruit, but rather that by nature, By your relationship with Adam, you are in a fallen state. You are in Adam and you need to be in Christ. You need his obedience, his righteousness, his sacrifice. You need the promised seed of the woman to crush the serpent for you and to offer his perfect obedience in your place. Cling to Christ, not because he will take you back into paradise, but because he will take you forward to what's to come. So often we look at this narrative and we think, this is telling me that I need to stop 
sinning, that I need to stop eating forbidden fruit. And while it is true that we ought to stop sinning and we ought to stop uh, eating forbidden fruit, it doesn't end there. It's far greater. It's telling us that we are ultimately unable to get back into the garden. We're, we're unable to uneat the fruit. It's just a fact of our existence. What we need is somebody who was tempted yet without sin. We need him to be our champion. We need him to crush the serpent for us. And God promises to send that one. And God did. God did. Now, do not even try to tempt me to give this up for humanism or secularism or pluralism or whatever other kind of ism you can think of. Do not even try to tempt me to give this up. Why would I give up this glorious, breathtaking arc of redemption that spans all of human history in which God himself takes it upon himself to right the wrongs in creation in a way that mixes judgment and mercy in a way that I could never fathom? Why would I give that up for secularism, for humanism, for naturalism? Don't try to tempt me to give those, uh, this up for one of those things. Those philosophies of today are so short-sighted, so shallow, so focused on me, me, me. But this is the kind of story that leads us to say with the apostle Paul, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. If we were to boil down the message of Genesis chapter three, it would be this. You cannot cover your own nakedness. You cannot uneat the fruit. You cannot get back into the garden. It's closed. And you cannot battle the serpent on your own. Your only hope, my only hope, is for someone to crush the serpent on our behalf. Our only hope is for someone else to cover our nakedness. Our only hope is for someone else to bring us into God's presence, for someone else's perfect obedience to be given to us. Do you have that hope? Do you have that hope in your life right now? If not, I challenge you, I encourage you, cling to Jesus Christ. He is the promised seed of the woman, the one and only person who is qualified and willing to do all of that for you. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening. Let's pray. Gracious Father, it's impossible for us to plumb the depths of your wisdom and your knowledge in the way that you have planned such a glorious arc of redemption. Lord, would you uh, never cease to amaze us by the power of the gospel as it's promised here, even with just small hints for us. Give us eyes to see your work in this world. Give us ears to hear your word as you preach to us. And give us a love and a desire for Jesus Christ, the one who was promised, the one who is for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.